right next to where our church is today. Two million. Uh, One million Syrian refugees, one million Iraqi IDPs. And so uh, it's quite a... It's quite a a thing when you have two million people just dumped right in your neighborhood and they're needy and they're open to the gospel. There's been enough uh, killing, there's been enough bloodshed and uh, frankly Muslim people over there are getting tired of it and they're very open to the message of Jesus Christ. And so we're actually having a revival in Kurdistan of Iraq. When I went there uh, 12 years ago, I didn't even see another Christian for three years. And I lived with the Muslims as a Christian. And, of course, the Kurds are a little bit different than other people in the Middle East. And uh, uh, they're just wonderful people. And uh, they embraced uh, and helped me in everything that I was doing. It's just really interesting how it all came to pass. But I think what I want to tell you right now about the ministry over in Kurdistan of Iraq is that you have a part in it. You know, I was just marveling uh, as I was listening to you worship tonight, and, you know, here's this little church that's uh, planted over here in Marana, Arizona, and already you're being felt all the way on the other side of the world because your pastor has been faithful to help us over there. And so those souls that are being won, you've made that possible, the things that have been miraculous, you've made that possible. And so... Uh, As I was watching you tonight, my mind was going back to the days when I was pioneering churches. And believe it or not, my first two churches were pioneered not far from you in Nogales, Arizona, Nogales, Sonora, Mexico. And uh, both of those churches grew into very successful churches. The one in Nogales, Sonora blossomed to 120 churches. And so I guess what I'm trying to tell you tonight is... uh, Everything that God does, it seems like he starts out small, and he does great things for it. So who's despised the day of small things? So never look at your numbers, never look at your circumstances. Understand that God, just for some reason, you'll have to ask him when you see him face to face, loves to take the day of small things and do something great with it. And so, even though you may not be aware of it, you're part of something very big that God is doing and will do. And the day will come when I'll come back through this year, you know, this area, and we'll look at your church again, and we'll remember these days. But we'll be looking at them from a, just a vastly different perspective. And you'll say, wow, the Lord has done great and mighty things with our lives. I used to stand as your pastor was standing with my guitar and playing worship, and uh, I think we drove more people off when I played and sang than we actually encouraged, but uh, we, managed to, <laughs> we managed to get through that. So pastor's not exaggerating. I, I enjoy, you know, I enjoy ministering in especially pioneer churches. My heart has always been there, and you know, I've had the privilege of ministering to very large crowds, and uh, I'll tell you something. It doesn't really matter to me, the size of a crowd. It matter, you know, sometimes we get these ideas on how we measure things, and they're just strange. Sitting here before me, just you 
people that I'm looking at. If there was nobody else but you on earth, all the potential to win the whole earth to Christ is right here. And God could do it through you. And I always taught my churches that if we were the only church there ever was, it would be our responsibility to win the world to Jesus Christ. And when you have a heart like that, something great is going to happen. The miraculous is going to happen. And I'm a believer in the miraculous, and fortunately, uh, I have many, many years now, uh, over 40-some odd years in ministry, I say odd because I don't want to exactly nail it down. It's kind of embarrassing. It makes you feel like Methuselah, you know. But I've seen God do a lot. And I just want you to know that uh, have faith for what the Lord's doing in your lives. Right now in Kurdistan of Iraq, uh, there's a severe depression there because of the ISIS uh, uh, war that's going on. And our church is filled with people that they've lost families to ISIS people that have had family members beheaded. And uh, what amazes me about America is, you know, we have all these cut and dried little ideas about what Bible prophecy is all about. And yet nobody seems to be even paying attention to the Middle East other than to say, well, it's part of it. But I'm wondering, you know, is there a correlation between tens of thousands of people being beheaded And what's written in the book of Revelation? Has anybody ever thought of that? Has anybody ever thought that, you know, Russia isn't really the one, though it's been popularized, that uh, is going to invade Israel? Uh, You know, that's been popularized in my lifetime. And it's popular. I've taught it myself. But uh, if if you really look at the scriptures, you know, you find that our... uh, Scholars are flawed in their assumptions, and when they're reading the Word of God, they're not, you know, they're speculating in ways that you can't. In other words, what I'm saying to make it simple for you is if you're going to look at the lands that are being talked about in prophecy in the Bible, you better pay attention to what the prophet saw, not someone, you know, 2,000 years later or 4,000 years later. And so I'm not preaching on Bible prophecy tonight, but I'm saying. Most people don't understand we're already in World War III. It just hasn't escalated yet. But it will. But it's not all bad news. Because I believe, one, that there is a great awakening coming to our nation. I don't believe that we're Babylon or any of that. Uh, You know, Babylon's over where I work. Do you get that? It's not here in America. We may be Babylonish sometimes in the way we act and behave, but that's not it. And uh, for those uh, who like to belittle our country and, uh, you know, make us out like we're the worst thing that's ever around, go live in the part of the world that I live in, and uh, you'll see a vast difference. As a matter of fact, you'll understand how much evil our country is holding back right now, despite the idiots that are in the government running the place right now. Pardon me, Lord. Okay, so, moving right along. I didn't want to bring you a sermon tonight. I wanted to bring you a message. There's a difference. And God usually, when I return and I begin to go around like I'm doing now, the Lord usually gives me a message, and He wants me to share that message and spread it abroad. 
So tonight, I'm giving you a message, not a sermon. It's not long, but I want you to hear it. Now, I'm going to introduce it by reading just a paragraph from an article that I was writing, and so I'm going to read that to you. And uh, I've just given it a heading called, Can We Change Our World? You know, if, if you're a fatalist, and if you don't believe we can make a difference, why even bother to come to church? You know, beam me up, Scotty, we can't do anything. Is that what Christ taught us? No, he said, don't worry about those things. You occupy until I come. Now, that's what Jesus Christ taught. And so, let me read my little article. Before we can answer this question, can we change our world, we have to acknowledge the world in which we live and take responsibility for our participation in it. We can't just tune it out and take what we need to survive within its structure for our benefit. History has always been changed by the actions of individuals who have identified a need right where they are and have taken responsibility to respond to that need. This doesn't require great resources. It requires vision, courage, and a will to make a beginning and persistence in the effort. In other words, it requires faith. Faith is probably one of the most misunderstood and misused ideas in common human perception. Somehow, we've come to feel that faith is an exotic form of denial. The belief in something that, from all appearances, is non-existent, but we strongly hope or wish it will be. I think this is what we've come to call blind faith. So many people perceive this to be the nature of faith, blind adherence to something insubstantial, something that can't be seen or proven. This is an absurd approach to faith, and it detracts from what it really is. Faith is dynamic. Faith is creative. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. So I want to just wrap with you just a little bit about quantum physics. And I know we have some sidewalk scientists like me here, so you'll be fascinated with this. It's not going to be long or painful, but I just want to make a point. For those of you who don't know what quantum mechanics or quantum physics is, it's the study of the universe at the subatomic level. And so one thing that uh, quantum physicists have discovered is that subatomic particles behave differently when there's a human observer watching them. Wow. In other words, they can become, particles can change into waves or the other way around. When they're not being watched by an observer, they behave one way. The moment an observer is there, they behave another way. What does that mean? Well, it means just what the Bible says. Just what I shared about faith being the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What it means is when you and I pray, when you and I act, we affect matter at a subatomic level. We bring things into existence that we're not. Now that's powerful stuff. Another thing that I really got a kick out of was that one scientist said, As we study quantum mechanics, it appears to us that randomness was deliberately inserted into the creation. 
Oh, wow, what's that mean, man? Well, I'm going to tell you. That's when I get one of those smirks you're always talking about, you know. But I'm spilling it tonight. What it means is when God created his universe, he built into it in advance every conceivable possibility that would ever be. So think of God's universe as this sea of possibilities. But just because something is possible, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's probable. Are you following me? Probability means this could happen. It's likely this will happen. And so to illustrate this, I'm going to take you back to my Navy days when I was a sailor. And uh, we used to sometimes be out at sea for weeks at a time, months at a time. And the farthest you can see out at sea on any clear day is 25 miles in every direction because of the curvature of the earth. And so anybody that's a sailor in here would remember that it's getting, you know, pretty boring just seeing nothing but water every single day for month in, month out. And so it's a real treat when you hit a school of flying fish and those things come flying out of the water. If you've never seen a flying fish up close, they're the craziest, most comical looking thing you ever saw. I mean, you know, I used to just get a kick out of watching it. You know, big bug eyes flipping their flippers and flying through there and looking, hey man, what are you doing here with that big thing, you know? And that's the way they looked. Or once in a while, you know, uh, to break the monotony of the sea, there'd be a school of porpoise swimming next to us. Or a real treat was seeing maybe a pod of whales. And so what that told me is that this isn't just this flat horizon of endless sea, but there's something down in there. There's, and, and, and the things that are coming to the surface are just a sampling of what's underneath. So let's go back further in history and pretend we're whalers for just a moment. So, you know, ancient whalers would be on a sailing ship, and, you know, the guy up in the crow's nest would see a whale spout off in the distance, and he'd put up the cry, Thar she blows! Well, now everybody on a whaling ship can come up to the rail and say, Yes, sir, there's a whale out there. This is a Kodak moment, man. Everybody, isn't that nice? But you see, those whalers weren't out there for Kodak moments. They were making a living hunting whales so they could get whale oil. Their families depended on it. There was a time when this nation depended on whale oil for power and energy, lighting, all of that. So these guys who had spent years at sea, they had a choice. They could say, there she blows, isn't that interesting? Or they could say, there is a possibility that is probable that we can turn that whale into whale oil. Now, I know that's not popular to say anymore, but remember, this is going back to the 17th century, late 18th century. Until they would get in their boats and go after that whale, it only was a possibility. But the moment they pursued it, it became a probability. Now, there's a chance that whale's going to slap the fire out of them and sink them. But there's even a better chance that they're going to get the whale. And then their probability becomes reality. What I am telling you is that God brings within 
each one of our lives possibilities that emerge at certain times as probabilities, but before they become reality, we have to wrestle them. And how do we do that? How do we wrestle a probability into reality? We use our faith. Now let me tell you a little story about Iraq. I just resigned my church. At the time, 12 years ago, I was 58 years old, and I figured that 38 years of pastoring is enough for anybody. You haven't experienced that yet, so you've got a ways to go. But, you know, I was singing that old song, no, 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 I don't pastor no more. I'm tired of waking up on the flow, you know, you all... No, I'm not a bitter root. I'm just telling you, I, I'd had enough of pastoring. I wanted to do a different kind of ministry, something more hands-on, but I didn't know what to do. So, you know, I have some media skills, and I used to do documentary work for our uh, churches and uh, our overseas ministries. So I, you know, I was feeling kind of sheepish about this. Have you ever been hesitant to ask the Lord something because you think he's going to say, that's stupid? Am I the only guy that ever, well, I was feeling like that, you know, and I was actually embarrassed, you know, but I, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm 58, you know, I don't want to go be a greeter down at Walmart, you know, that's where a lot of my friends end up, you know, and I just don't want to do that. That's honorable work. I don't, not putting it down, but <clears throat> I thought maybe I'll ask the Lord what he thinks about me doing a little Christian media business. You know, I could make special productions that would reach into a niche market within the Christian community that would be uh, something that the churches could use, be evangelistic, you know, stuff and material. And uh, that would support Patty and I, and then I'd make enough to do my ministry the way I wanted to do it. But I was embarrassed to actually ask the Lord about that, but I thought, oh, well, what the heck. I'm going to do it. And to my astonishment, when I prayed, he answered me immediately. And he gave me an answer. And, and it was, it, this may not be meaningful to you, but it was very revelatory to me. He said, don't make it a business. Make it a ministry. I understood what he meant, but I didn't know how to apply it. So I'm pondering this, and then I get a call from my son, Peter, who is a U.S. combat soldier, combat medic in battle uh, in Mosul, Iraq, still one of the most dangerous cities in Iraq. And he calls me, and uh, we're talking on the phone, and try to get this in your mind. You're talking to your son. He's in Iraq, and all of a sudden he says, uh, hold on, Dad, we got incoming. And their base is under attack. You're, and then the, the line goes dead. And you're standing there, you know, praying and saying, God, you know, protect my boy. And there's silence, and you're holding your breath. And then all of a sudden I hear his voice on the other end. And just as casually as I'm talking to you, he says, uh, Ah, they missed. They're bad shots. And he just goes on, you know. And I'm, my heart's coming out of my chest, you know. And so he says, well, the reason I called you, Dad, is I befriended, my Kurdi my, I befriended our Kurdish interpreters. And they've been telling me their story. The story of what they call the Anfal. 
which was Saddam Hussein's operation, Al-Anfal, against the Kurds, which was a holocaust. It was actually a gendercide because they sought to kill every male from nine years old to 70 years old. And uh, they wanted to kill any potential fighter or resistor against the regime. And before Operation All and Fall, which is just one operation, is over, they're going to take a hundred or three, I'm sorry, 320,000 Kurdish lives, men, women, and children. They're going to take 5,000 men in revenge just out of Barzan territory alone in revenge against Kurdistan's leader at that time, Mustafa Barzani, who was leading the resistance against Saddam. So I want you to get a feel for this. What did Saddam do when he took those 5,000 men and boys away? And they were never seen again until we discovered the mass graves years later and the bodies, what remained, the bones and clothes were brought home. What he did is he killed every father, every husband, every uncle, every brother, every son, every nephew, and left the women destitute with just the kids that were under nine years old. That's the world that I came to right after the American liberation of Iraq. You know, a lot of people have political feelings of whether we should have ever been in Iraq or not. Ask my son, who is a wounded combat veteran, what he thinks about that. There was a French girl that got online with my other son one time and said, what are you Americans doing in Iraq? And, you know, my older son said, well, <clears throat> my brother's uh, a soldier in Iraq. Why don't you ask him? And so she did. And she was, you know, just berating him for being an American soldier in the Middle East. And he just wrote her back real curtly and said, I'm here and I'm putting my life on the line for the Kurds of Iraq. Now, if you've never met the Kurds of Iraq, or if you don't know their story, or if you don't know anything about that, then that means nothing to you. But all I can tell you is that our forces gave Iraq another shot. And until somebody, idiot, you know, some, <coughs> excuse me, some politician pulled our troops out and left a vacuum, Iraq was stabilized, despite what the news media said. I was there. Now, I'm not trying to be political here, but I'm making a point. When I went in, right after the liberation, they were cutting every American's head off they could capture. You, some of you remember that. And I figured that it was a 30-70 chance against me that I'd come back alive out of that. But I thought, what the heck? What the heck? I want to do something meaningful with the remains of the day. My wife backed me. She's as much a hero in all of this as I ever was because she had to hold things together while I was gone. 
We lived apart for five years, not consecutively, but three months on, three months off. What I'm telling you at that time, well, now it's six years. I've spent away from my family living by myself in Iraq on the ground. So I know a little bit about the Middle East, especially about this area of the Middle East. But I knew nothing back then. And my son calls me. And he says, Dad, I've been talking to our Kurdish interpreters, and they're hurting units. And most Americans don't understand or know about their story. You could come over here, and you could tell it. And he was referring to my documentary filmmaker type of uh, capacities. So I got to praying about it, and I said, well, Peter... If the KDP, the Kurdish Democratic Party, will invite me in as a filmmaker, a Christian filmmaker, I'll come. Well, the short version of this is they did and I did. And so, in Kurdistan of Iraq, I'm recognized as a filmmaker. The high watermark of my life was when I was sitting in a... uh, large banquet that they were holding for the victims of the Anfal period and their families. About 1,200 people and one of the members of parliament that are our friends over there invited my interpreter Mohammed and Pastor Lath and myself to that. And we're just sitting there watching the families getting awards and compensation for the family members, you know, and accommodations for the sacrifices they've made. And We're enjoying the Kurdish entertainment. Everything to this point has been in Kurdish language, which I don't have a clue about. That's why I have an interpreter. And all of a sudden, over the loudspeaker, comes this announcement in perfect English. We're very privileged to have with us American filmmaker Jack Harris, who documented the and fall of our people. And they said it with such heart and with such legitimacy uh, uh, and, and vindication of my efforts that I'd have to say that's one of the most touching moments in all of my life. Now, what am I saying? It all started years ago. I mean, for those of you who have followed us, we rebuilt two Kurdish villages that were destroyed by Saddam Hussein. We've done all kinds of humanitarian pro- uh, you know, uh, projects Uh, for the Kurdish people, the Muslim people. And the way that worked together is when it came time when Pastor Lath and I met, he couldn't get his church legalized in Kurdistan. And uh, there's a reason for that, but I won't go into it. But uh, because of what I'd done for the Kurds, in appreciation for that, and when they heard that I was associated with that little church, Not only did they legalize us and give us legal standing, but they gave us a piece of property on which we have built our church that until the collapse of the economy in a booming Kurdistan of Iraq was worth $2 million. Now that's quite a story. Every time I tell that, I think I'm telling somebody else's story. But it all started when a kid in war calls his dad and said, you could come over here and you could tell these people's story. And I'm just uh, at this place where I don't know what I'm going to do next in life. And I suspect some of you may be there too. 
You know, there's an old saying, you know, do, do you, did anybody here ever love the far side? Does anybody remember the far side? Any far side fans here? Go ahead, raise your hand, it's okay. Nobody will squeal. Well, my favorite cartoon is that one where, you know, that uh, heron or stork or whatever it was has plucked this frog out of the swamp and is about to try to swallow him, but that frog has decided he ain't going to go gentle into that good night, and he's reached out and he's throttling, you know, the crane or the, you know, whatever kind of bird that was, and uh, choking him, and <clears throat> that bird's just looking astonished in the caption under it, was it ain't over till it's over. And I think God wants us to understand, especially those of us that are getting up there in years, that it ain't over till it's over. That God has something at every stage of life, whether you're young, whether you're in between, or whether you're in your senior years, as long as we're alive, we're viable. And God can use us in extraordinary ways. And what happened 12 years ago when my son called me was a probability appeared. And I remember that I wanted it. And I asked the Lord, and this may shock your theology, but you're going to get it anyway. I asked the Lord, Lord, do you want me to go to Iraq? And the Lord said to me very clearly, and I'm not one of those guys who says the Lord said, you know, the Lord said. He told me how to butter my toast this morning. He told me what kind of jam to use, you know. God doesn't chatter as much as everybody thinks. But he did answer that question. And he said, do you want that opportunity? And the moment he said that, I knew that I could say no and I wouldn't be penalized for it. But something inside of me leapt. And I said, yes, Lord. Yes, I want it. And so that probability became my reality for the last 12 years. And it's been the greatest adventure of my whole life. Now, I use that as an example because I'm going to very quickly now finish my message by talking to you about an improbable miracle. And what I mean by that is this is one of the most important miracles, if not the most important miracle in the Bible, and yet it wasn't supposed to happen. And some of you may get ticked at me when I tell you which one it is because you've never thought of it like this. Well, don't get mad. Wisdom doesn't die with me, but I'm preaching tonight. So here, here she goes. First of all, let me give you an exhortation, Philippians 3.13. Brethren, the apostle says, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before. If you're going to go anywhere from where you are right now, there's some things that you're going to have to forget. Your disappointments, mostly. Your failures. Your situations. If you're going to let those things dominate your mind, they'll defeat you and you'll never make a beginning. Sometimes you just have to forget those things and move forward. 
You know, I'm an old soldier. And I can look around in a crowd and I can look at people and I can sum them up pretty quick. And some of you got some scars on you and they're very obvious to me. Why? Because I got the same ones on my heart. This Christianity can wound you, can't it? But if you let it, if you let those wounds fester, if you don't put them behind you, they'll destroy all of your probabilities. And that's what Paul's saying here. I forget those things that are behind. I forget the time when I was failing and resisting and all the things that have hurt me. I put all that behind. I even put my successes behind me. I press toward what's in front of me. Yesterday was yesterday. Today is today. And if there is to be a tomorrow, it's going to be based on the decisions I make for today. Does that make sense? So, let's look at this improbable miracle. Which one is it? Well, it's the first one that Jesus ever did. The turning of water into wine. And I think that's the greatest miracle of the Bible. Somebody says, why? Because you like alcohol? No. Because I like transformation. And I know what it is to have your life turn gray and lose the color. You ever had the color just drain out of your life? When the most precious thing you have left is clear as water? Well, that's what this miracle is about. It isn't about booze. It's about a miracle of transformation. Even when I say that, it makes my heart leap inside of me. So let's read it real quickly. In the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now let's pause right there. King James has done a great job of translating that. It's accurate, but actually it misses the real teeth of what's being said there. What we translate woman might have flown in the 16th century, but a more accurate way for us today to understand it was what he said to his mother was madam. When's the last time you called your mom madam? I guarantee you, if you did, you were mad at her. Okay, if you're lying, you're dying. Say amen. Shame the devil, folks. You don't go around calling your mom madam. Whenever you say madam, you're ticked at your mom. But let's look at what else he said. The actual technical translation of the Aramaic here is madam, that's none of our business. I'll let that rattle around, you know, like a BB in a boxcar here in your brain for a moment. That's none of our business. <laughs> Did you hear what he said? Jesus didn't want to do a miracle. Well, let's look at it from Jesus' point of view. He's just come out of the wilderness. 
He's been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He fought the devil. He didn't go to the marriage, you know, because he wanted to minister or preach or do anything. Maybe before he set off on that gospel road, maybe he just wanted to spend some time with his disciples and enjoy a little companionship. A little rest. A little fellowship. And his mother, typical Jewish mom, You know, she's sensitive, she's looking around and concerned. These are obviously friends of their family, that's why they're invited. And she comes up to her son, who has never done a miracle to this point, remember. But she remembers what an angel said. You listening to me, kids, back there? It's important to hear. She says, they're out of wine. Jesus says, that's none of our business. Now, I know that just irritates some of you when you hear that, but let me, let me back up a little bit. Do you remember when Jesus sent the disciples out on uh, the Sea of Galilee? He said, you go to the other side, I'm going to wait back here. And then the boys get into a storm, and they're fighting it out in the middle of it, and they, they're fearing for their lives. And then here comes Jesus walking on the water. Now, that's a wonderful story until you read the part in the Scripture that says he would have passed them by. Do you remember that part? He would have passed them by. Now, wait a minute. Was he thinking about his next sermon so hard that he forgot where his boys were and that they were in trouble? Was he oblivious to the storm he's walking on? I mean, you know, was Jesus... A little ditzy sometimes, you know, and preoccupied? No, I don't think so. But he would have passed them by. But he was walking close enough to them that they could see him. And he did not respond to them until they called out. I get so sick of hearing lame brain people say, Well, if God is such a good God... You know, how come he lets so much evil do that? Well, why don't you get your evil in check? And that'll go a long way toward healing the world. You know, you quit stealing. You quit lying. You quit doing what you're doing. Hello? You know, if God did what he was, you know, you think he should do, he'd have killed you already. We don't think about that part of it, do we? I don't know about you boys, but I'm one of those he should have killed young. You know, I just, when I got saved, I got saved. I needed saving. You know, I didn't grow up in church. Anybody else know what I'm talking about here? Let's don't dwell on the subject. Let's move on. Thank God for salvation. My point is simply this. God does not respond to need. You know, I was laughing with my brother, you know, he, he was having problems with uh, an engine he was rebuilding and <clears throat> just had this reoccurring problem and he's a master mechanic and he just couldn't figure what was going on and the first thing as a Christian we do when something's going wrong in our life is we say, now Lord, you know, 
are you punishing me? <laughs> you know, or why are you like, you know, we think these things shouldn't happen to us because we're children of God. Well, I got news for you. God doesn't respond to need. Just because you're one of his kids, that doesn't mean he's just sitting there. Oh, I'm going to move this out of the way. I'm not going to let you have this problem. I'm not going to let you have that problem. If you've got a problem, he actually wants you to cry out. When they cried out, he responded. He stopped the storm. But he would have passed them by. Some of you need to remember that. You know, God's going to just get a hold of me when he wants to get a hold of me. You young people, listen to this very carefully. You can slide straight into hell and think that God was going to keep you out of it and you didn't have to do a thing. Don't you believe it? If you want to be saved, you're going to have to do just what your elders before you did. You're going to have to cry out and say, God, help me. Hmm. We still do believe these kind of things, right? I mean, this is, I'm not preaching false doctrine so far, am I? Okay, I just was giving you a check. Okay. God doesn't respond to need. That's all I want you to say. So, here we see it again. Jesus said, this isn't our business. Now, again, I've said that Mary is a good Jewish mother. So, I think she's acting like a good Jewish mother. What's she do? She just, he's just kind of insulted her graciously, put her in her place, and she just kind of looks at the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. And she just walks off and leaves the whole enchilada on his back. Right? That's what happened here. Now, Jesus is stuck with it. What's he going to do? Well, we don't hear him belly aching about it. We don't hear him complaining. We don't hear anything. He immediately sees that there are six water pots over here. And the good old King James tells us, you know, there are two or, uh, you know, what was it? Uh, how many firkins apiece? Does anybody know what a firkin is, you know? Uh, the, you know, containing two or three firkins apiece. Well, Depending on which commentators you look at, you know, uh, some will say it's 20 gallons, some will say it's 30 gallons a jug, you know. Well, my point is, that's a lot of hooch. (laughs) Come on, have you done the math? This is a lot of booze here, folks. You know, it was grape juice. No, it's wine. They're having a party over there. I'm not advocating drinking here. I'm just saying, this is a lot of hooch. I'm just a commentator. I'm just looking at this, and that's what it says. And so, <clears throat> the amazing thing is, is Jesus says, now fill those jars up to the top with water, and the servants do it. Now, I don't see any place in here where Jesus laid hands on the pots, do you? I don't see him doing some mumbo-jumbo over it. I don't see him doing anything to it. I don't see him praying over it. He simply said to the servants, now dip in the dipper, and take it and to the master of the feast and give him a taste. So, until the master of the feast tastes it, it's still water. Isn't that interesting? But the servants are just willing to go along and believe Jesus. And I like the master of the feast response, you know. He takes a sip 
of the water. Woo! Boy, howdy, boy. Son, come here. Everybody sets out the good stuff first. And then when everybody's a little tipsy, they put out the terrible stuff, the cheap stuff. But you, you've served the good stuff and saved it until now. Now there's two significant things here. The water was <laughs> turned to wine, but it wasn't that old sly fox. It was the good stuff. My point is what God does, He does well. And don't anybody go out here and buy a bottle of wine tonight, okay? That's not my point. What I'm trying to say is this first miracle is a miracle of transformation. I remember the day he turned my water into wine. And he's done it many times since then. And I guess we can kind of wrap this up tonight by just simply saying, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, a little city. What many would say was an important and significant city. But the miracle was done there. This is a keynote miracle. This miracle contains all the theology of our salvation in it. And he did it in a little bitty place. wonder what he could do in Moran, Arizona. wonder what he could do here at Living Hope. wonder what he could do in your life. If you'd seize what seemed to be improbable. Now there's just one small point, and I conclude with it. What most people didn't understand, and Mary certainly didn't understand it, because we can read the story and understand where it's going, and we've studied our Bibles. I'm wanting to shout at Mary, you know, if I could. If I could go back in time, I'd be out in the audience shouting, Mary, Mary, don't you know what you're asking him to do? Don't you realize that when he takes that first step to do that first miracle, his time has come. Remember what he said? My time has not yet come. But the moment he did this first miracle for a young couple, he took the first step on the trail that's going to lead to his death. That gives me a lot of hope tonight. Because my message to you is one of hope, not despair. We're living in a crazy old world right now, especially if you're watching the politics. You know, I know some people like Hillary, some people like Donald. My opinion is what has America come to that it's down to these two? But what it is is what it is. If there was ever a time we need God's help, it's today. Would you like to know something that the Lord actually did speak in an audible voice to me in Iraq? Would you like to hear that short story? When I tell you that God speaks in an audible voice, 
I'm not playing around with you. He doesn't do it very often, incidentally. But when he does do it, there's no mistaking who it is and what he's saying. Now, if you live in Iraq like I have, you spend most of your time alone because when I first went, nobody spoke English over there except my interpreter. (coughs) So when he isn't there, I'm usually by myself. And so when I want to talk to somebody, I got two choices. I can talk to myself or I can talk to God. It isn't healthy to talk to yourself. And so I opted to talk to God. But with this little disclaimer, whenever I'm talking to the Lord out loud, I'm actually thinking he's not listening. It doesn't matter what I say. Any of you ever do that? You know, Lord, you know, I'm thinking, you know, he's too busy to listen to my chatter, but I'm just, I'm, I'm maintaining my mental health. You understand what I'm saying? But he's listening when you don't think he's listening. So here I am in my hotel room. In those days, that was a very loose way of describing the quarters we had in those days. <coughs> but at least it had a western toilet. That's a whole other issue if you've never encountered a squatty potty. <coughs> But there was a television set in there. Of course, we only had power two hours a day in those days. And, uh, but I was watching back when Obama and McCain were running. and I'm just ranting. I'm looking at that. I'm just ticked. I'm, I'm, I, here's exactly what I was saying. Lord, look at this. There isn't a leader among them. Not one. Is this the best our country can come up with? You know, and I'm ranting, you know, the country's going to hell on roller skates. And the Lord actually audibly answered me. It shocked me because I honestly wasn't really talking to him. (laughs) And this is exactly what he said. And exactly the way he said it. I'm God in heaven. And I'm not concerned about who your people choose as their political leadership. I can turn the king's heart like rivers of water. And that's when I understood that CNN isn't in charge. Fox News isn't in charge. The morons that run our country aren't in charge. God's still in there. And, and he's able to use things. He's able to take the wicked in their own craftiness. There are good people in our government, incidentally. But there are sure some idiots. Lord, forgive me. God save us from idiots. But I understood from that time on that God is still in control of what's going on in this world. And he's able to use evil to fight evil. And we'll just move on from there. And so if you're concerned about what's going on right now, as all of us are, I want to just remind you, he's still God in heaven. And he can turn things 
the way they need to go. And I do believe that our country is going to have its greatest awakening ahead of us, not behind us. And as long as there are people here that will believe that and espouse that and will act on that probability right where they are, you don't have to convince everybody else. You just need to do your part where you are. It'll happen. It'll happen. Now, I'm going to close tonight by sharing a scripture with you that the Lord gave me back when I was a young preacher. Some of you would remember a wonderful evangelist by the name of Dick Mills. Anybody remember Dick Mills? Well, years ago, when I was a young preacher, just starting off, our pastor brought Dick Mills into our church with one purpose. We had a large congregation. But that night, Dick's assignment was only to minister to the young couples that were going into ministry. Because he wanted us to have a word from God, and he had confidence that Dick would have a word for all of us. And he did. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about Dick Mills' ministry of the time, is he has a wonderful anointed mind. He has the ability to pull scriptures out of the Bible in an anointed context that just fits where you are and where you're going. And he'll have his secretary or whoever's with him write those down for you. And they're kind of like promises. He gave me three that night. And every one of them, over the course of my lifetime, has come to pass exactly like they were written. And I have to confess, the first two... I didn't understand at all, but when they happened, it was very, very apparent. But the last one that he gave me, I've always understood it, and I've carried it in my heart all these years. Gee. It's over 43 years ago. It's a long time to carry something. And I'm just going to share it with you, and then I'm going to tell you what it meant, because I've always known what it means. Now, if you put it in context, it's out of the prophet Zechariah, and that prophecy in chapter 14 of Zechariah is for Israel, and it's about the return of Jesus to the land of Israel and what's going to happen. But when God takes a scripture out and applies it to you, it's for you. And this is what it reads, Zechariah 14, 7. But it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. What's that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit made me understand that for me and my generation, Me and my generation. He saves the good wine for last. The light shines its brightest at the last. Now, you can accept that, or you can just fade away if you want to. But I believe it. 
I believe for my generation, and many of you here are my generation, that means the best is yet ahead for us, not behind us. And we've got some glorious things behind us. But the best is yet ahead. It's not our age. It's not our strength. It's not any of those things. It's the Lord's doing. And it means the same thing for these young people that are here. Because they're part of that generation in that they're coming into it. And what happens for us happens for them. So all this potential is in what we call the last of the last days. At evening time, it's light, not dark. It's light, not dark. See, I'm a believer that as the world gets darker and darker, the people of God get brighter and brighter. One thing the Navy drilled into me was that we never stand in the dark and strike a match aboard a ship because one match can be seen 25 miles in every direction by an enemy ship. One match. You know, I noticed that it's dark outside. Did anybody notice that? And there's a lot more darkness out there than there is actual light going on in here, but I don't see any rays of darkness shining through those open windows. Do you? As a matter of fact, the light of this little church is just lighting up everything outside there. And I believe each one of you, wherever you are, when you ignite, you push back the darkness for 25 miles in every direction. That's you. Now you put us all together and we form a beacon light. All I know is that we're coming right now into the greatest days of human history. And if we'll receive it, if we'll lay hold of it, if we'll have faith to seize this probability, we will see God move in an unprecedented way. And some of us have seen God move. Amen. I'm looking at you young people tonight, and you're good kids. You really are. But let me ask you a question, and, and this is not a trap, kids. I, I, I'm not messing with you. I wouldn't do that to you. But have you ever seen Jesus heal a blind man, totally blind? Have you ever seen it? I have. Many times. Have you ever seen tumors on a person's body disappear before your eyes? I have, many times. Have you ever seen a woman that was crippled in an automobile accident, spine broken, and she'll never walk again? Have you ever seen that kind of a woman get out of her wheelchair in one moment of time and push it around on a stage because Jesus healed her? Have you ever seen that? I have. I have, because I preached in the meetings where he did that. I can tell you stories that would boggle your imagination. You'd almost think I was lying. Fortunately, we actually have film of these things. We ought to start putting that on the Internet.
Miracles start happening when I was across that border in Nogales, Sonora, Mexico. Let me just close tonight by telling one more story for you young people. You older ones, can you cope with that? This is for you, kids. When I call you kids, I'm not demeaning you. I'm just trying to tell you I like you, that's all. And that I value you. I always wanted to be a man that God could use and see the things just like we saw in our Bible, but I never did. I used to see some films of some great evangelists of the time that that was happening for, and, but I never thought that could happen. For me, I'm just this little pastor out pioneering, just, you know, my first church. Well, there happened to come to our city a world evangelist by the name of Argemiro Figuero. And he was part of Morris Cirillo, a name you're not familiar with, but some of you here remember. He was part of Morris Cirillo's world evangelism team. And he came in and he did a crusade for our church. And we set up this crusade in the bull ring, the Plaza de Toros, right there in Nogales. And we packed it out, not with church people, because there weren't (laughs) church people there in those days. Not many, anyway. 5,000 unsaved young people, mostly. And for the first time, as that man preached the gospel, we saw miracles happening every night. This went on for six nights. There were several thousand people saved. Miracles like we'd never seen before. And on the last night, this great man of God came to me and he said, You know, Pastor Harris, this meeting is going so good you need to carry it on. And I looked at him and I said, Brother, I don't have a gift ministry like you. And he looked at me like I was dumber than a bag of hammers. I'm I'm serious. He said, Do you think that these people are being healed by me, by some gifting in me? And I thought, Well, yeah, He said, all I do is the same thing you do. I preach the gospel. I have faith to preach the gospel and believe God will do just exactly what he said he would do. Signs following. And he said, and if you'll do what I showed you to do this week, if you'll do it the way I showed you to do it, God will do the same thing for you. So I was emboldened. And I said, okay, I will. Well, he split town and the next night I came in early and Sure enough, there were 5,000 people in that bull ring, and that scared the pee-waddling beans right out of me. And I began to lose my confidence. I began to say, man, (coughs) what if I get out there and fail? I began to repent. Now, our church was right next door to the Plaza de Toros, so I went in and locked myself in by myself, and I began to cry out to the Lord. And I was in tears. I was scared. I was in tears, and I felt that I had sinned to believe that I could follow. I I felt like I was a presumptuous idiot. And as I'm in tears, apologizing to the Lord, this is also one of the times when he spoke audibly to me. 
And kids, this is what God said. I'm talking about the living God from beyond time, from eternity, spoke to a young man, not much older than all of you at that time, not that much older. And this is what he said. The works that I do shall you also do, and greater than these, because I go to my Father. That filled me with faith. And I went out and preached that first miracle crusade. And that night, I saw miracles come out of my ministry. That night, I saw a girl who was born deaf, who had never heard in her entire life, healed. And heard sound for the first time. Paralyzed arms and legs. Sicknesses of every kind. Hundreds of miracles. I knew I wasn't doing it, but I knew that if I would preach the gospel, if I would do it God's way, He would do all of that. I want you guys just to remember that. Remember what this old guy told you. Because I have an idea before it's all said and done, there's some great things that are going to come out of these kids. You guys get kind of a witness on that? But this is something also I think you should remember. People say, how come we don't see miracles in the church? Well, can I tell you that miracles aren't for the church? They're for the lost. Now you can play church all you want to, but until you get this gospel outside these four walls into that lost community... Nothing's going to happen. But if you'll believe Christ and you'll do what He says, you'll begin to see a move of God that'll stagger your imagination. And you know, that's something you kids can do right where you are. Just share your faith. That's something all of us can redo. Just share our faith. Some of you are thinking, well... I'm not worthy. I agree with you. You're not. That's why Jesus died for us. So let's put that one away and not worry about that. Let's be the kind of people that just believe, that see farther than other people see, that can bring heaven down to earth and solve some of the problems instead of all the Mickey Mouse stuff that we hear on TV and it's been popularized, you know, and all the modern ideas of what's right and wrong. You know, go back to the old book. You'd be surprised what's in there and you'd be surprised what God will do if you do what He does. Amen? There are some probable miracles here tonight. And if I could wrestle them down for you, I would, but I can't. You have to seize them. Now, I've taken up a little bit of your time tonight, but you know, I also know that while I've been talking to you, the Holy Spirit's been talking to you. And far beyond any words that I've been saying, He's been speaking things into your heart. He's been speaking possibilities. He's been slipping ideas into you.
there's a lot of things God's willing to do if you'll do it with him. Well, I've tried and I've failed. Well, try again. This time do it God's way. I've tried and failed a lot. So what? Did you learn? Did you adjust? Did you move forward? That's what's required. That's what faith is. Don't let the devil just beat you down and tell you you're nothing or nobody. (sighs) If that were true, he wouldn't even be bothering with you and I wouldn't be here tonight. Stand to your feet with me, will you? Bow your heads just a moment and close your eyes. Father, thank you for the privilege of just meeting with these precious people. Thank you for their attention and their open, wonderful hearts before you. I feel their value, Lord. I see what you see in them. Not nearly as to the depth that you see it, but even my sensibilities can see your grace, your love, your purpose in every one of their lives. Father, I know by the Holy Spirit that you're moving and you're breaking things inside of each of our hearts tonight that need to be broken and encouraging things that need to be encouraged. Now, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to do what I can't do, and that's to reach each one of us where our need is tonight, and help us. I'm asking that you help us, Lord, and that you minister, and that these people, when they return to their homes tonight, they will know that you met with them, that you touched them, that you revitalized them, that you showed them wonderful things that they never knew about themselves. If you're for them, who could possibly be against them? Now tonight, as our heads are bowed for just a moment, is there anyone here you've never asked Jesus into your heart and maybe all this is new and strange to you, but you'd uh, something inside of you is saying, you need to pay attention to what that guy's saying tonight. You need to open your heart and you need to make a stand. Is there anyone here you could raise your hand up and say, pray for me tonight? I need Jesus. I've never received Jesus as my Savior, but... I'd like to tonight, anyone at all. 